Hello and welcome to the latest episode of CFA UK's In Conversation podcast. This is a show for investment professionals and focuses on topics that really matter to the profession today. My name is James Doyle and I'm the Director of Green Finance Investment Management at Evelyn Partners. And joining me on this episode is Paris Jordan, CFA, Head of Responsible Investing at Charles Stanley and co-founder of Virtue Invest. Today, we'll be looking at the latest shifts in regulation and public perception impacting wealth management, sustainability from a wealth manager's perspective, and the interest of the wealthy in ESG and sustainability investment options. We'll also explore sustainability-related disclosures and regulation impacting discretionary wealth managers, along with how to balance profit and impact in impact investing. Paris, welcome. Firstly, before we start, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you've been up to and what your role is? Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here today, James. Um, so I'm Paris Jordan. Um, I head up uh, Responsible Investment at Charles Stanley. Um, effectively, that means I sit within the investment team and help with ESG integration across the investment processes. But beyond that, it means I look at uh, voting, stewardship, engagement, and ensuring that we've got the right amount of training being rolled out across the business. Uh, as we're all aware, um, education, upskilling in the sustainable space is incredibly um, pressing at the moment and so it's uh, incredibly important for me to make sure that uh, those at Charles Stanley have the tools they need to succeed. Um, separately I also look after and co-founded a DFM network called VirtuVest. Um, that is a forum for DFM sustainable investment professionals to discuss topics that are relevant to them um, and we work alongside other industry groups and feed into the regulator as well. Great. Well, um, mentioned a number of topics there. Um, perhaps for the benefit of our, our listeners, um, what do discretionary wealth managers do as we get started and, and why is fiduciary duty important? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, discretionary wealth managers, I like to see as this part of a larger food chain in the investment industry. You've got the fund managers, um, of which I'm sure many people know who those are, um, creating funds, running those funds. And then, of course, you've got the very end users of clients. But within that, there is uh, discretionary fund managers who can either select stocks themselves, bonds, buy funds and build tailored and bespoke portfolios for those end clients. There are also uh, more off-the-shelf solutions, things like most, um, MPS, so uh, model portfolio suites, um, and they're a bit more kind of tailored. But mo the bulk of discretionary wealth management is, is bespoke um, and that is much more focused on ensuring the client has the very specific, um, their very specific goals met. So the client comes to a wealth manager, outlines their investment uh, profile, their risks and objectives and their preferences and gives discretion to the investment manager to, to manage that according to, to those. Exactly. And, and how does that fit in with the concept of fiduciary duty, um, given effectively the wealth manager is an agent? Um, what does it mean in the context of wealth manager, do you think? So I think in the context of wealth management in general, and we can touch upon sustainability in a moment, um, ultimately we're the informed party. You know, we are providing expertise, we are providing a service and many times a solution to that client. They are coming to us and trusting us to act on their behalf. Now that means, as you've just identified, we give them the right portfolios, whether that's from a risk perspective, uh, an objective goal setting perspective, uh, but it's much more complex now. You know, we bring in the topic of sustainability. It's also making sure we meet their sustainability goals and for each client that can look very very different there are those that um, and this is quite traditional that there are those that do not want to invest in a particular sector so oil and gas uh, fossil fuels and so 
it is the uh, discretionary fund manager's responsibility or portfolio manager to ensure that those goals and sustainability requirements are met. Equally, there are those on the other side that would like to work with larger companies such as uh, oil and gas companies to help them improve and transition. And again, it is up to the, the investment manager to find a strategy that suits that. So fiduciary duty is incredibly important around reflecting a client's views, but also giving them the best outcome for what they're trying to achieve. Yeah, you mentioned there in terms of uh, different uh, restrictions, I guess they are, where sustainable investing would have started with ethical restrictions, but that's not the only only part of it. There are other clients with preferences who may want an impact on the world and, and deal with companies and, and make a positive uh, contribution with, with their money and allocate capital that way. Um, so what are some of the issues as it's changing and the, the introducing sustainability into that sort of traditional model how do you balance profit and impact together and serve clients without imposing your views on, on them and their preferences? Absolutely. You know, that, that that conversation around where does fiduciary duty lie, how far does it go, and at what point are you then imposing your views is, is one that, you know, we've grappled with in the investment management industry. Uh, the way that I like to view it is ultimately it's the same as when you're doing stock assessments. At what point are you imposing your view on picking one firm over another? And ultimately, it's the information and the analysis that you are implementing. So one of the key terms that many people will hear is about ESG integration. Um, it's become incredibly popular over the last four or five years. Uh, and now you'll be you'll struggle to find any manager that's not doing some form of ESG integration. And ultimately, what that is, um, is more of the technical approach rather than the kind of values-based approach to ESG. It's identifying what risks and opportunities related to environmental, social or governance factors are going to affect that company. You know, what's material to them? To a semiconductor company, water is going to be pretty material given that you use a lot of water in the input process. That assessment of ESG is less values-based and much more um, investment-oriented based. So that in itself is kind of a baseline for making sure that you are you are still meeting um, fiduciary duty, you are given the best outcomes without imposing your values. Beyond that, you can have lots of debates around stewardship and voting. Uh, that's a peculiar one because oftentimes what you'll tend to find is you get recommended to vote a certain way for the interest either of the business or the client. And so pooling those assets to vote in a particular way can become quite sticky. If, you if as a firm, you outline quite clearly what your views and approaches are going to be, a client then has the discretion to say, yes, I agree with that and I want to pick your services or no, I don't. So it's really, it's all about transparency about what you're trying to achieve and what your kind of moral compass or what your views as a firm is alongside that ESG integration, which is very much a research driven approach rather than a, a views, values, morals approach. Yeah, you raise some interesting points there in terms of ESG integration and stewardship. Often that's termed under the same umbrella for responsible investment in the industry and certainly for the investment profession and uh, effectively taking those non-financial risks that could impact a client's returns on their portfolios and general risk management. And then there are others that sort of will look for the more the value-based um, preferences and it doesn't have to be contradict to each other, it's but being very clear about what uh, you're trying to provide the client with. Um, the stewardship obviously is an angle uh, which is all about long-term value in the interests of clients and what have you, but it does 
uh, get quite tricky and certain uh, giving clients an option at least of knowing what you're doing you can't just impose that obviously so absolutely I think you make a very good point there around stewardship and the long-term horizon because stewardship can look very different on a three-year horizon than a 15-year horizon voting one way in three years to get maximized profits for that client who wants to reach their goal in three year looks incredibly different on a 10, 15 year horizon because um, you want that company to survive. You want them to be sustainable. You want them to have revenues that go into the future. Um, so a lot of the time it's bringing that question back to the investment manager, the investment industry and the client. What horizon are you looking for? And ultimately we all want there to be a functioning um, economic system, a financial system. Uh, and so that longevity um, and then perhaps voting in line with that longevity is really probably one of the answers to a big question that we tend to to have around stewardship and and um, ensuring that we're voting the right way. Yeah, it's interesting how you mentioned different uh, clients' time horizons and a lot of the area of, of developments are long-term and look at really long investment horizons Pension funds have a much long, longer view than, say, your average retail investor and perhaps discretionary client. And not all needs are the same, or, or but long term, there's systemic risks. And had you, you, catering for the different time horizons is is part of the tricky part of the industry. Um, <laughs> doing the best by clients, isn't it? It's, all, all all clients aren't homogeneous in terms of their outlook and view and uh, uh, returns on a short versus medium or long term. Uh, yeah, no, not at all. Um, and, you know, I think we might touch upon it in a little more uh, detail later. But there is one thing that the, the regulator in their recent SDR legislation, um, which is related to sustainability labelling of funds, has attempted to do. Um, they've tried to identify that there are different approaches um, to um, ESG, sustainability, responsible investment investing and so they've come up with these different labels to identify which ones um, they are um, so there is a recognition that you know not all clients are the same but ultimately they are still trying to do more work in the discretionary space at the moment because i don't think there was that understanding of how fragmented and how um complex and different client needs are um, so currently you know we're involved and i know james you've been involved as well in the the ongoing consultation related to the dfm market um, but it has been pleasing to see that they have rolled out the labels for the fund market which has identified that they're you know not everything is the same it certainly i mean you raise an interesting point here as we come on to sort of sustainability interests and trends this this whole proliferation of um, new regulation interest in general ESG uh, and and the labelling that's that's coming up, it's coming from an area of interest in sustainability and long term. We talked about different um, time horizons, various surveys, the FT surveys and private client surveys, or the FCA even quotes in their in their preambles to the SDR that the is uh, a growing interest in something like seventy five percent of clients want to do good with their money or, or something like that from different surveys. Do you, do you think there's science supporting this rise of interest for, and is bearing out for discretionary managers or is it just more interest in as a wait and see uh, given so many different client types? Yeah, I mean, this is a fantastic question because it's one I get all of the time and have done over over nearly a decade now. Um, and what is 
fascinating to see is that even when we do all these studies, we tend to find that the overwhelming answer is yes, people are either slightly interested, very interested or completely interested. Um, now, you could say that there is a bias when people are answering surveys that they want to feel good and say that, yes, we, we do. We are interested. Um, but what's even more interesting, uh, rather than just people saying, yes, they are, they are interested, is that when you look at the age difference in cohorts, um, you look at the younger generation, some of the studies I've seen, I mean, you're looking at over 70, 80, 90% of them saying, yes, they want to invest in a particular way. We obviously also know that a lot of the wealth is not tied to that generation. It is still um, still with, with some of the, the, the uh, older um, people. Um, now, views are changing. You are seeing those conversations happen at family level. I've dealt with a number of um, endowments, um, groups, family groups who have said, oh, my grandchild's raised this and we're quite interested in these particular things. Um, but I do still think the application of these views hasn't really happened. Um, now, I, I'm about to say something fairly controversial for you. Um, and it brings back to the beginning point I made about how we're the informed experts. People come to us for insight, for um for guidance on their portfolios. They want advice. Um, and if we are not delivering um, the right questions, they having the right conversations with them, if we do not have the right frameworks related to sustainability and responsible investing, which you know the regulators are a little bit behind on because it is a fairly new space, um, then it's much harder for discretionary fund managers or portfolio managers to, to provide that service. Um, it's been rapidly changing. Within the last five years, we've gone from a very small amount of assets to trillions in sustainability. Uh, and we're expecting, you know, hundreds of people who've been doing this for decades, oh, sorry, hundreds of people who haven't been doing this for decades to suddenly upskill and be able to have those very informed conversations with clients. Um, so I think there's definitely an onus on the discretionary wealth management industry to take the lead in these conversations. And I think as we see that shift change and we get more comfortable with it, um, because there is no denying that perhaps sustainability got ahead of itself and then has had to come back and kind of mature. Um, I think some of the conversations we're seeing will change and uh, assets to certain areas will also change. Of course, we've also got the regulation um, pressing down from the other side of that as well. So you've got uh, different forces at play. Yeah, interesting you mentioned it. It seems like it's it's certainly not a fad, although it's had a lot of attention. But uh, as you talked about the fragmentation of different needs, and often uh, you can see fund flows and in, in, in funds, ESG type funds, and you got the risk of greenwashing there. But clearly, there's been a lot of activity. Um, but it's the interest um, from the FCA particularly is on retail clients and there's a lot of institutional money in, in, in here and obviously they want to protect the interests of that. Um, in terms of regulatory trends, we've mentioned SDR, which is the uh, FCA UK's sustainability disclosure requirements regime. Um, what are you sort of seeing the uh, shifts in the regulation and public perception of that? We've sort of touched on that, um, particularly for discretionary management, because there's a lot in the asset management world, there's in banking world and what have you, but as discretionary wealth managers, and how do you assess the sort of the impact of this in short to medium term? The full impact on the discretionary uh, wealth management realm from legislation is, is has barely touched the surface. Um, like I mentioned earlier, we've got the consultation for that particular subsector um, ongoing with the FCA at the moment. Uh, they recognise the complexities of it. They want to do more work. They want to make sure it works um, both for them and for, for us working in the space. Um, but the one thing that is coming in is the anti-greenwashing rule. And that is applicable to, to businesses that operate 
in general, it doesn't matter if you're a discretionary wealth manager, a fund manager, an advisor, um, you have to adhere to this rule. Um, one of the things that we unfortunately had seen um, definitely from around 2020 when we, we saw huge popularity in sustainability um, funds was that perhaps there were assertions that this was the solution to everybody's problems. Uh, and unfortunately, we saw a couple of years later, the markets turn, markets change, um, and you know a slightly different style come into favour, which really harmed um, those sustainability portfolios that were very focused on one particular approach to sustainability. Um, and that had a fallout. And I think that's also why, you know, the regulators being quite clear around you need to make sure what you are providing to clients is very transparent. And, and ultimately, that's that's the key to it. It's transparency. It's communication. It's ensuring there isn't a miscommunication around the product itself. Um, telling people that, yes, this is sustainable, you'll be absolutely fine, but not disclosing the risks related to that investment. If you are solely investing in things like wind farms, solar panels, you know, you, you take on particular risks of those sectors. If you emit other sectors, you take on risk of not being exposed to those sectors. So it's just making sure that we have much more of a, a holistic view. We're not mis-selling in any way. And actually, we're just communicating properly. And that communication piece brings back to my education piece I mentioned earlier. It's understanding what we're putting in portfolios, what outcomes there are, what risks we're taking on. Um, and so the more informed we get and we will be guided by regulation in some in some form, um, then the easier it's going to be to be transparent and communicate and make sure we've got the right outcomes for clients. Yeah, that's great. I mean, the we've mentioned SDR labels and I would think that's a step in the right direction, clarifying criteria that will somebody invest in a particular fund or, or a, a, a service when it gets extended to that that's claiming some characteristic around sustainability or climate or whatever, or, or a particular label that will give certainty to people and create, uh, I guess, a level playing field that, that people understand what they are. And then it's the, the next part around the impact on the discretion wealth managers and the whole IFA market really in this area will be, um, is that the next challenge, how do you integrate this into the advice process when you've got fiduciary duty and particularly uh, for regulated firms in the UK, uh, the method suitability requirements and matching that alongside all of those other preferences. And uh, that will be the subject of the FCA's new uh, promoted advisor, sustainability advisor industry body that they're trying to pull together to gather that because it, it's not straightforward. Um, so I think we're going to see a lot of developments in there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, kudos to the FCA really for for identifying that there is this large gap around suitability and how are um, advisors and discretionary managers going to how are they going to solve for that? Um, you know, we, we've had uh, decades of trying to create suitability, which has always been evolving anyway. Um, but this huge piece of, um, well, it's a brand new piece in some ways. You know, you've got your risk, you've got your uh, time horizon, you've got your goals, and now you've got your entire sustainability piece that's going to be applied to the lot of it. And then sustainability in itself, as we've already discussed, is not just do we exclude a stock or add a stock in. It is much wider than that. It's to do with preferences and values. And, you know, do you want to help transition? Do you want to make an impact? Or do you just not want to invest in a particular um, company? And that creates such a complex kind of chain for an advisor or a discretion manager and then on top of that for those of us working uh, in the space we know we've got the operational functions 
to support that behind it. We've got the compliance functions to make sure that none of those uh, breaches occur. So it's not just having that one conversation with a client. Thank you very much. I'll see you next year. It's you know that ongoing monitoring um, and making sure you're picking the right solutions for that client. Um, and of course, a client's views might change next year. They might have decided they do want to be more active. They do want to engage more. Um, so, you know, embedding suitability, which is a whole piece in itself into that um, into the suitability process is, is, is quite a mammoth task. So I'm very much looking forward to see what that working group uh, come up with. I think we all are. And I think there's a we mentioned about differences and, and perspectives on this and what i would the fca has done a good job of reaching out and, and and listening and trying to engage the practicalities of this and that's partly uh why they're, why they're doing that and it's not just something simple but uh and hopefully learn from the lessons on the eu side of where they have mandated specifically with strict sort of criteria um which has its own challenges and, and operationally but also i think there's a, a difference you mentioned touched on it earlier between uh, uh, being an informed advice trusted advisors you know clients come to us and that's a very nuanced discussion around meeting their their needs versus somebody on a platform selecting their own fund making their own decision and 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 having what it says on the turn they're sustainable this or what have you and they, they make that decision when they we give them discretion so how that works within the control processes and ensuring ongoing suitability contractually as well because that's what you sort of have to look at that i think that's going to be a real challenge practically but but an exciting journey as well um, in the meantime, I guess you, you talked about selecting stocks or, or, or within that ESG integration part from an investment point of view when building portfolios or what have you. Um, what are the, some of the uh, tools and uh, disclosures and things that wealth managers could lean on now um, to sort of being practical about how to select investments for, for clients that have sort of more express preferences in this area than, than sort of mainstream perhaps? Yeah, absolutely. So if we if we tackle the kind of the ESG integration, um, what I always tend to find is that discretionary managers, fund managers, most of them are already doing a lot of the ESG analysis. Uh, they just haven't really labelled it or told us that that's the framework they're using. It's fairly sensible to work out that something like Facebook or Meta has a material impact from data security. That's quite obvious as a, someone who knows it's going to affect the kind of financials, but ultimately that is an ESG factor. So most discretionary managers, fund managers should be reassured that they're probably doing the work if they're good fundamental analysts in the first place. It more comes down to making sure that framework is applied and robust and it's repeatable. So you can explain, oh, we have looked at this particular stock because we know this factor affects it. And you mentioned something earlier, James, that um, really kind of resonated with me. You, you use the term non-financial factors and you're absolutely right. You know, these, are, these were and non-financial factors. Um, for me, I think they've almost changed now. I think they're financially material factors, but we're still seeing them in the old world of, oh, well, that wildfire is non-financial. Actually, it's now an impact on a company or, oh, the the, the canal we need to bring the supply, uh, we need to bring our ships through to supply the products is a bit low. That was a non-financial factor because it was water related, but it, now it's financially material on that balance sheet. So even the way that we talk about it, there, there's, a, there's a change there. Um, so, for the discretionary manager, recognizing um, that they probably are doing the fundamental analysis in the first place is key. Um, finding a materiality framework. So it's materiality framework is just a fancy way of just saying what I've said, what's material to the balance sheet of a company um, and applying that so they can explain it to clients. Uh, and then beyond that, they're, um, you know, 
they they should be leaning on um, whatever tools they can find. And when I say tools, it can be as simple as a fund that has a label. So it might be that they're looking at um, um, some of the systems. So it could be Morningstar, FE, it could be uh, using MSCI tools um, to identify what that product does. And it's not just saying, oh, because this company says it's this, therefore I'm including it. It's using the underlying information. Um, I think we fall... Um, too easily uh, or fall back too easily on ratings within this industry um, but really understanding what that rating is is the key point um, because ultimately if you can't explain to a client why something's rated triple c or double b um, related to sustainability then you know that that could you know if i was really making long strides could be constituted as greenwashing to some extent because you're telling them that that's sustainable but you're not really sure why um so you know lifting the bonnet is is absolutely uh, integral um, and most firms these days they tend to have sustainability uh, either departments or um resources that they can use um obviously charles stanley they've got myself and we've got somebody else on the team but we've also got plenty of well-informed uh, discretionary managers who have been doing this for a long time and run specific products um so so firms are very aware that this is important um and i guess if firms aren't aware this is important um those listening could be the ones that stand up and say you know i want to take a lead on this that's what i did at the beginning of my career and how i've ended up here um and so it's it's not going away is, is the conclusion really it's just growing um, and it will continue to grow especially as assets move down and regulation um, continues to come through yeah i think you've raised an important point regarding the materiality uh, you know alongside esg integration to really in integrate those factors it's uh, those that might become material to impact that investment this is a risk management should be doing it everybody's known management and good, good governance is good for a long-term health of the company but some of these longer term environmental uh, and social issues become more and more material and that's what every good portfolio manager should be and, and their research picking up on and then that's a qualitative factor to put alongside the rest of the different risk factors and you're absolutely right around you know that kind of incorporation of risk analysis and one thing that will make this easier is as disclosures get better as well so at the moment you know it, it's quite hard for most people to work out in 15 years time how a carbon tax in a particular area is going to affect a balance sheet of a company that emits carbon and um, once you start to factor those things in with much more certainty than we have now you can start to see over a 10 15 20 year horizon how viable and how sustainable that company's revenues are going to be. Um, so the more that we see better disclosures, and you know there there are sustainability standards boards that are coming in globally, um, which do appear to seem um, very favourable by many um, groups of, around the world. Um, and once those are implemented, which will take a number of years. Um, we can start to get better data and we can start to assess companies with these factors that we we've not really incorporated for a very long time. Yeah, so you, you raise an interesting point when you're talking about ratings and not necessarily understanding what goes into them, as if it's something can be summed up by a number, a rating, and it's more, this is where the quality of the research, the analyst and, and the portfolio manager really understand what's driving uh, values for a particular stock or, or, or even a collective fund or what have you. It's there's that judgment, and this is where the professional side comes in. But it's not necessarily coming down to one number because of the data needs to improve and the quality of that judgment. So you know it fits in that investment process, but hard to touch sometimes when uh, there's so many non-standardisation. If you just look at ESG ratings 
it's, I think even the FCA quoted in its consultation that correlation of ESG ratings before, between providers was about 0.54 compared to credit risk ratings, which is a whole different angle, uh, about 0.97 or something like that. So I don't think you're going it's, to – one analyst will view a, a particular piece of information slightly different than another, but that's that's okay in, in the industry. It's it's uh, what, what you're looking at, how you see that risk, just like – a a balance sheet put it, put together by one accountant to another will be slightly different. Exactly. Um, you know, I, I many people have concerns around the ESG rating agencies being so different. I actually think that's a very good thing. It means that we are all using our judgments to identify what we think is more material. And it's the same way that we all do when we're buying stocks and bonds. One person is a buyer, one person is a seller. With the ESG ratings, one person thinks this is better, one person thinks that actually that risk is not material. The difference is we have been looking at ESG ratings the same way we've been viewing credit ratings, and they are just not the same. Credit ratings are a formalized process to you know assess the kind of how much credit risk something has, whereas an ESG rating is much more qualitative and a view on whether this company is a, a good investment from very different factors from somebody else's view. Um, I consider them more like brokers. You know, is it a buy recommendation? Is it a sell recommendation? Can you use that within your investment process to understand or to get some insight? Um, but it's not a it's not a yes or a no. Um, and don't get me wrong. ESG ratings do have a place, but they are widely misunderstood as gospel when in fact they're just a view. A view that's maybe a starting point, but you dig a bit deeper, you want to understand yourself, and which was, makes a pretty interesting uh, conversation for another time, perhaps uh, active versus passive and just uh, on indices and what have you. Um, you mentioned uh, sort of about upskilling in this area. So let's um, spending a, a minute for those that are listening that be interested in pursuing interest in, in developing knowledge and skills and sustainable um finance concepts and investment management. And what would you recommend to somebody starting out um, or even well along in their career, um, either end of the spectrum? This is a growing area. Absolutely. It is a growing area, one that is rapidly changing. Um, and I am going to start, I know we're on the CFA's podcast, but uh, I did do the, the CFA uh, ESG investing certificate uh, many moons ago when it first came out. Um, it probably it probably has ra rapidly changed from when I've done it as well. Um, but that that's a fantastic and enjoyable thing um, about this particular industry, the sustainable industry. Um, so, uh, you know, my first recommendation is genuinely get a, a view, a certificate of the marketplace, understanding what's going on. Um, of course, there's now the climate change one um, exam as well, and there's now the impact um, exam which has come out as well. Um, so, you know, th there are available resources for you. The other thing that um, that can be done is is genuinely join networking groups, um, that's one thing that I found, you know, I, I set up this, this, this network with, with some peers because back at the time I found there, there wasn't really any space for us to have a conversation and we just kept bumping into each other at conferences and uh, asking each other, so what are you doing with this particular piece of legislation that's coming in? And a client's asked me about this, but I don't really know what I'm doing in these areas. And I found that actually this peer-to-peer -peer conversation was incredibly well needed in this space when it is so nascent and it is changing rapidly. Um, what your view is today can be very different from what your view is going to be next year because you've got more information. Um, and that's something to also recognise you know, there is no right answer in this space. There's informed answers, but there's no right answer. Um, so your view on something now will change. Uh, that's absolutely fine. And it's kind of how we're making progress. 
Yeah, I'd agree with that. I, I think that's where we originally met um, uh, Paris and through Virtue Invest, but other industry forums, conferences, what have you, if your firm's an investment firm and involved in any industry body, often they have free webinars and obviously the CFA's got a huge amount of material and, and the sustainability community as well is a great place to be informed and uh, getting involved. Um, and then finally, so there's a question that we ask all our guests, looking back on your own career, which is one piece of advice that you'd passed on to junior professionals and our industry or those who are looking to change careers or tact? That's a, that's a big question. You know, one piece of advice to give to somebody. Um, for me, it was probably much, probably related to kind of passion and interest. Um, so this area, for me, it was always something that aligned with my personal values. And when building a career, and I think when you first start out or even 10 years in, you forget that your career is actually 30, 40, even 50 years long these days. Um, so you've got to find something that you you enjoy, um, something you're passionate about, something you're very curious about, um, because it's very easy to, to kind of get stagnant and to, to not want to go to work on that nine to five, you know, Monday to Friday. Um, so for me, it's, it's finding something that, you know, does engage you, um, does make you curious, and then really kind of following that. Um, not everybody is going to completely adore sustainability. Um, I think what, from what I've seen, a lot more people do now uh, than they did 10 years ago. Um, but, but that's because it's grown. People are much more aware of it. Um, but it's very much my one piece of advice there would just be, you know, stay true to what you're, you're looking to do because you, you're going to have to do it for a long time. I think that word curious and willing to learn is, is uh, a key word there and, and just um, put your hand up, get involved in any opportunity that's uh, within your firms um, or jobs that, that sort of lend you onto projects that could get into uh, dealing with sustainability concepts and ESG and what have you, wherever that is in your firm and, and growing from there. Um, Paris, thank you so much for your insight and thank you to everyone for listening. Remember to look out for the next episode of our In Conversation podcast through the usual CFA UK email and social media channels. And you can also subscribe that, so that you don't miss an episode through CFA UK's SoundCloud channel or Apple podcast. Thanks very much. Thank you.